Before we get into today's episode about the Mysterians, I want to discuss a sensitive topic and lay clear a chapter of director Ishiro Honda's life that both Charlotte and I found extremely relevant to today's film. There won't be any graphic discussion, but here's a content warning for those particularly sensitive to discussion of sexual assault and slavery. We've mentioned before on Castle Bravo that Ishiro Honda was drafted into the Japanese military during World War II against his personal and religious beliefs, and that at one point he was assigned to both guard and manage what was called a comfort woman station. At the time, and to this day, Japan frames the comfort women of World War II as prostitutes and these stations as brothels, but the reality is that these women were sex slaves held against their will by the barrel of a gun. The only information we have about Honda's time at the station, rather than pure conjecture, comes from Honda himself, who published an essay after the war about his time there. In it, he recounts the stories of many of the women at the camp, learning that they were slaves and not willing prostitutes, and relating it to his own situation of being forced into service of the military against his will. Now, with only Honda's word, it's entirely possible that he has massaged or manipulated the truth in order to salvage his own character. Indeed, it's usually healthy to have a dose of skepticism for the first-hand accounts of any soldier who was involved in, or adjacent to, war crimes. However, Honda's account is also completely consistent with what we know of his life before and after the war. He was an unwilling participant in the war, distasteful of propaganda, and tackled the subject of the exploitation of women several times through his filmography. The Japanese army also did, at the time, have a habit of executing those they deemed deserters, and often without trial. While many Japanese soldiers happily participated out of a sense of nationalism, many others were also held by the barrel of that same invisible gun. None of us will ever know exactly what Honda did at this station, either of his own free will or against it. Both Charlotte and I are strongly inclined to take Honda at his word, despite our usual skepticism. You may not be. I simply wanted this very important piece of context to be laid out ahead of a fun and silly pulp sci-fi film that, at points, echoes this piece of Honda's history. Thank you, and on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Castle Bravo, a Godzillaverse retrospective. I'm Derek. And I'm Charlotte. And we're two siblings here to examine the history of the Godzilla franchise, one movie at a time. Charlotte. What's up? How are we doing today? Um, pretty good, minus the ear infection. That's not great. Are you, are you okay. headphoning currently? Yeah, but the, you know, they're not in my ears. <laughs> I hate in-ear headphones at the best of times, so. Yeah. I, uh, I haven't had to deal with an ear infection in forever. And to be honest with you, I don't know what to do other than pouring witch hazel in my ear and taking antibiotics if I can get them. But I don't talk to doctors, so. You do what in your ear? Oh, you pour witch, witch hazel's great. It's, it's anti-inflammatory. Uh, it balances. I, I, I use it as a toner, um, but it's also pretty good in small amounts in your ear, so. Oh, yeah. I mean, I use it on my face, but no, I have like eardrops for my ear. Because I get, ear, I get ear infections all the time. That's a smarter move. I'm like a child. I just realized that I said I don't talk to doctors and then talked about some like really <laughs> alternative medicine sounding ass. Like, witch hazel's a nice, gentle, topical thing, and doctors are good. I just don't have money. <laughs> and I have anxiety about interfacing with our, with our medical Derek is industry. fully vaccinated, yeah, folks. I am not. <laughs> I am not about to tell you. To, to stick needles in your back in order to cure your infections. That's not, 
where I'm at in the world. So, so far in Castle Bravo, we have begun to tell the story of director Ishiro Honda, who is a young man who was drafted into the Japanese Imperial military during World War II. He had a number of extremely traumatic experiences during war, including being a POW and having to guard and manage a comfort women station, which was the Japanese military's practice of basically forcing mainland Asian women into sex slavery for their army. He comes back home. He is in Japan when the nuclear bombs are dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and then goes on to have to produce and and assist in directing a lot of imperial propaganda shortly thereafter. He gets the opportunity to work with Akira Kurosawa some and do a few post-war dramas, and Godzilla is his first foray into kind of sci-fi and horror, and that is in many ways how he exercises a lot of his trauma over both war and the nuclear bombings. Now, while he was busy with other movies in the aftermath, Toho would go on to make a not very good sequel with a different director. But then we covered Rodan, which was also by Ishiro Honda, which in many ways was a better sequel to Godzilla than the actual sequel to Godzilla. Much better. And we're starting to see these recurring themes of being strongly against the experimentation with or use of nuclear weapons. We're beginning to already see a lot of very kind of global and humanist perspectives pop in where these two movies of his so far have focused on the world working together whenever any sort of international viewpoint is brought up. Mm -hmm. And now we are moving away from the giant monster movies that we've been covering so far more into pulp sci-fi with today's movie, The Mysterians, which like pretty much everything else this season, is an Ishiro Honda joint. Yeah, uh, this this movie was not what I thought it was going to be. Yeah, uh, same here. So this is actually <laughs> a movie I have not seen before this last week. I knew of it. I knew of it by reputation, but I'd never gotten around to seeing it. And it was, um, it was interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I enjoyed it. It was, like I said last time, I normally don't look at the movie posters beforehand, but this one I did, and I was like, Oh, this must be something about like a space Power Ranger crew. No. So here's the funny thing. I'm going to say this before we get into the movie, because obviously the Mysterians outfits look incredibly similar to like a Power Rangers style, like Super Sentai outfit. The Mysterians predate Super Sentai by well over a decade, if I remember. When did when did the original Super Sentai air? Let me look that up again, because this movie was 1957 and the original Super Sentai went on the air 1975 so it's it's almost it's about 20 years almost before power rangers would become a thing huh well i'm sure it well i mean i guess it's obvious but i'm sure that a lot of this influenced that i mean we will talk about this more through but this is an incredibly influential movie in a lot of ways this despite being a movie from 1957 looks like something that could have come decades later because of how influential many of its design and aesthetics are. So, Charlotte, why don't you tell us what this movie is about? What happens in The Mysterians? So a lot happens in The Mysterians, but I will do my best to condense it. It's a fairly um, dense movie. Uh, again, we're, we're noticing a, a style here with Honda that he tends to make very dense movies. Yeah, so, and this is just as an aside, I've watched a lot of 
like American horror and stuff like that, which like sci-fi back in, in this era for American movies was usually horror. There are movies you don't really need to pay attention to, to be honest. Like, it'll just be like, ah, the monster is attacking the village, and then there will be screaming for 20 minutes, and then the story will continue. But you have to pay attention to Honda's movies. If you don't, you will miss something, and you'll be like, why do they have giant satellite dishes on the ground? Yeah, like, I love The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Is probably one of my favorite old school sci-fi horror movies. And I think it's a great example of Western film at the time and its approach to horror. But you can tune out a lot of it. Yeah. So this movie starts during a festival. We have our four main characters. This one does go back to having basically main characters again. We have Etsuko, Hiroko, uh, Shiraishi, and Atsumi. And... Those are the four characters we're going to be following to some degree, especially the men. And like everyone's connected to Shiraishi. I don't know that anybody is a main character, but it seems like every one of the named characters is basically connected back primarily to Shiraishi. Right. Etsuko is his sister. Uh, Hiroko is his ex-fiance because in the very beginning of this, they're talking about the fact that he broke off his engagement with her. And then Atsumi is like the guy that he, he works with. So they're in the festival. Shiraishi storms off. And his friend Natsumi goes and follows him and he discusses how he had to break off his engagement because he can't leave the village. He doesn't feel like he can leave where he is. He needs to finish his research. And then suddenly a fire breaks out nearby and, you know, everybody's running up to the fire. They don't realize how big it is. It doesn't actually show them putting out the fire or anything. They're just like, damn, that's a big fire. And then it cuts away. We go to the space research facility that Shiraishi works at. Atsumi and Professor Adachi are discussing his theory. He is writing a big theory about a group of stars that was once a planet in between Mars and Saturn, and they call it Stereoid. So I made a note here in regards to this specific point. You can't actually fit a star cluster between Mars and Saturn. Um, that's Listen. not, that's not how, how space works. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to assume that Honda is maybe not familiar with... I mean, I'm sure that also like the everyman nowadays knows a little more about space and the makeup and size of our solar system than the average person back in the 1950s. But sure. I mean, back then there were a lot of theories about there being a planet somewhere. Oh, yeah. In, the, in that big planet belt. X. Yeah. Planet X is coming up like as a plot point again or. Oh, I mean, like in Godzilla. But oh, yeah. Planet okay. X like by name will be a thing. Gotcha. Well, it, Shiraishi has, a, has this theory that it, it's real and it existed. Uh, his report isn't finished yet, and right when they're discussing this, they get word that a village has just fallen into the earth, and there's radiation everywhere. So they go to this newly formed valley where the, where the village used to be. Uh, the radiation's already dissipated, but the water nearby is still bubbling. There's a river filled with dead fish closer to where that forest fire was. Basically, there's just a lot going on. They're, they're driving towards a mountain, and the ground is just extremely hot, and they note that. And then out of nowhere, and, like, it was very jarring when it happened, a giant mole robot just crashes out of the mountainside. And, like, I recognized that it was Mogira. I, I also recognize it never said Mogira, which, you know, we'll, maybe we'll talk about that later. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk a little more about Mogira, like, outside of plot stuff, but, but a giant yeah. mole robot. Yeah, giant mole robot just shows up, trashes their car, so they, they escape. They get out of there. Can we talk about those uh, I-beam effects for 1957? 
unironically yeah. love it. It's clearly a drawn on like animation that's just being layered on top of the film. Yeah, but it looks good. But I love it. It looks solid. He's got yeah. these little blue little beep 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 views. <laughs> um, they do that a few times with a few different laser effects in this, and it, it looks good. So they escape. They're they're back at like a government building. I could, I didn't make a note of exactly where they were, but it is a government building. They didn't exactly have a sign out front that was like, and this yeah. is the governor's <laughs> mansion. Well, you know, uh, Atsumi is told that Etsuko is waiting for him in a hotel. Meanwhile, everybody's gathering together to discuss this new giant mole robot. They're trying to figure out what they're supposed to do with that. The military uh, discusses the fact that they need to, you know, defeat the robot. So they evacuate the area. Everybody's fleeing. They're putting out these fires that the robot's causing. And then it tries to cross a bridge, so they blow up the bridge. And the robot just kind of crumples over. Yeah, it, it falls into the ravine, <laughs> and it, like, gets destroyed from the fall. So yeah. the conventional weapons don't do shit to it, but falling in, like, the weight of its own body seems to be a problem still. Yeah. By the way, and- I just want to point out, too, that the sequence where the military is attacking Mogera... And, and failing to do any damage to it. Like, I don't know if they've changed the makeup of the suit or what, but they were actually firing, like, fireworks at the yeah. suit. So you actually had the appearance of little shells hitting it and blowing up or bouncing off and not doing any damage. Honestly, between this and then, like, some scenes later where they're firing at, you know, another thing, they hit all of their shots, and I was just like, finally. Yeah, yeah, like, they know how to aim for once. I don't know what changed effects-wise, but it seems like they're now able to actually use pyrotechnics without immediately burning the person inside the suit alive. Which good. Which is good. Because I don't, I don't want that to happen. The person inside the suit is our good suit actor boy, Haruo Nakajima. Oh, okay. Who has been Godzilla and Rodan so far. And now he's been a mole robot. Yes. In everything. Yeah. I, honestly, they just keep putting him in wilder and wilder suits, and I think it's... <laughs> I think there's a bet behind the scenes where like Honda and Subaraya are like, yo, let's see if, he, if we can get him to put on this bulky piece of shit. And they win the bet every time. So yeah, <laughs> dedicated to his craft. <laughs> yeah. So they go back, they get a piece of the robot. They find a new chemical on it. That's really all they describe it as. It's just a new chemical. And they say, well, I, I don't know what this chemical is from. So it's from outer space. And then everybody's, just, you know, they look shocked. And then it cuts to back to the facility and they're looking through their giant telescope into space and there's just lights flowing from behind the moon down to earth and that was a scene i had to watch a couple times like i kept rewinding it going what is that what am i looking at because it was just like lights coming down and that might have just been me i mean i think i assumed given what little i knew about the movie that they were ufos but i can see where the effect did not necessarily broadcast that I thought it was like some type of energy or something coming from oh, it. Oh, I can see they, that. Because they talked about how Mogira was controlled remotely, and I was like, is this like the energy coming down to control their mole robots? But Yeah. By the way, another thing to point out now as you bring that up, rather than later in the section on Mogera, Mogera would be one of the earliest examples in fiction of a remotely controlled robot. So Tetsujin 28 is broadly considered the first true example of a remote-controlled, like, giant robot in fiction. And that was only a year and a half before this movie came out. That was that anime about it, right? Uh, I think it was a... I don't remember if it was an anime or if it was a manga first. I think it was a manga first. I think it was a comic okay. before it became 
like an animated series and they did like a live action TV show and they've rebooted. I mean, it's it's a big thing, but yeah. I think it's very, very interesting because the first issue of this comic hits in, I want to say it was July of 1956 and Mysterians comes out in December of 57. So it's less than a year and a half later. And I'm, I'm not sure if Tetsujin 28 made that big of an immediate cultural impact that Honda would have immediately seen or some suit at Toho who needed a giant thing in this movie. Because originally Mogera was not in this movie. Originally, this was purely an alien invasion thing. And oh. the fact that they had a giant robot that pops up in a couple scenes was not a thing. But executives were like, look, Godzilla, Rodan, like these things are in and we want some more of this good pseudomation stuff. So give us something. And Mogera was actually even originally biological. It was originally like a like a mole creature before oh. it became a robot. So it, it's definitely been through multiple phases before what we see in the final movie. But I'm not sure exactly how big Tessigen 28 was to influence this. Regardless, Mogera becomes one of the earliest examples in fiction of a giant remote controlled robot. Neat. Anyway, continue. S yeah. So they immediately say, okay, well, these lights are ships. They're stopping by yeah, an artificial satellite and they're coming to earth. And they're able to determine that they're using a lake to take off from. And about that time, a giant alien dome just emerges from the ground because all their technology is mole based, I guess. So this makes sense alien... when they explain some stuff later, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. So they call out five names that they want to have come and negotiate. And the, sorry, the aliens call out the five names for the people that are there. Somehow they know their names. They had it all prepped. They have the five people that they call in to negotiate wear these big goofy cloaks because it's cold in there. Probably because, you know, it's an underground base. And It's actually warm in they caves, go, though. I mean, all the, all the cave things I've been to here in the state have been cold down there. Well, if you go down in the winter, it's warm. It doesn't matter. We're it, it was a summer festival. It's cold in their the it's true. It's cold in their base. So <laughs> yeah, um, they go in and they meet the leader. The leader explains that they are from the Mysterioid. Um, Shiraishi was right, uh, but the Mysterioid was destroyed hundreds of thousands of years ago because of a nuclear war, and they migrated to Mars after that, and they basically sit Mogira down to show the Earth the power of their science so that they wouldn't fight them. They state that they will retaliate against any kind of aggression, which is very funny, given what they've done so far. They also state they don't have any ambition to take over the galaxy, which is very funny, given what they've done so far. And primarily, they want to mate with human women and replenish their population because their bodies are horribly disfigured from nuclear radiation. Yeah, so here's, here's what I noticed after this first kind of info dump from the leader of the Mysterians is this is not an invading imperial force from some massive space empire. These are the leftovers of an empire that destroyed itself. Right. These are basically right. in a lot of ways, they were settlers and refugees on Mars that are trying to move to Earth because Earth actually has the resources needed to survive. These are people who are long, long descended from the actual Mysterians who fought in and caused that war and doomed their planet and their species. So that's interesting to me. 
because usually yeah. in these types of alien invasion movies, it is like an invasion force. And this re- this really is more like refugees who are descended from the actual war criminals. But you can tell immediately that there's some kind of gaslighty shit going on. Not to use one of the sacred G words. Yeah, yeah. Because they go, yeah, we yeah. only want three kilometers of land, which is what, like a mile and a half? Yeah, it's, but they've already occupied it. Yeah, but they've already occupied it. They say, we don't want to fight, but we did want to show you how strong we are so that you don't fight us. And then they go, we want these five, not even five, find us five human women. Find me these five specific human women who we really like because we're just genetically a goddamn mess. And human women, humans have not been tainted by like the aftermath of nuclear war yet. Like we're not genetically decaying yet. So it's like a way for them to sort of restore their genetic bloodline, which is kind of a gross and creepy in a whole bunch of levels. So this is something that I noticed about it, though, was that around this time, and this also is just because I've watched a lot of movies from around this time that are American movies, there was always like this thread of like, oh, they're gross and they're coming for your women. Yeah. And that very paternalistic in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. But they, they do. They say, we want these five Earth women. And of course, it's Etsuko, Hiroko, and like some other women. You know what's funny, too? And, and this will come back up later as well. If the Mysterians had come about this differently, I almost think that Earth would have gone along with them, right? I was if, thinking that the if whole If you time. were yeah. refugee, I mean, the whole attitude of this movie and the kind of global cooperation we see later, if these were refugees from a dead star who came and said, we've got nothing, our species is dying, we want to integrate into human society, give us a small, you know, we would like a small plot of land for us to make our home base on, and we would like to become a part of Earth's world. Like, they would have gotten land and resources, almost certainly, because like, wow, fucking aliens. They probably would have got some human women, not given to them by a nation, but like, Women will be like, damn, I'm a bone me an alien. That's just how people are. We want to bone right. aliens. So <laughs> th- it would have happened. They would have found romance on their own. And the fact that they came and tried to play this pretend, they, they played victims while trying to extract what they wanted. Right. And I find that very interesting because, well, I don't want to spoil that part, but we'll bring it back up when we get to it. So why don't you continue? Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. So they say they want five Earth women in particular, which would be Shiraishi and Atsumi's girlfriends and some others. Um, they do state at that in that moment that we want these two women that you know. We've already kidnapped the other three, so we we already have the other women. Yeah. So you may as well give me these two. We on Earth do consider uh, that a dick move. Yes. So they give them their terms. They leave. The military convenes, and they're like, "All right, well." Start prepping defenses because we're not doing this. Right. <laughs> and during this, Shiraishi appears on the TV through their advanced technology. And he's joined the Mysterians because they have advanced technology. And he urges everybody in the room to heed the request of the Mysterians, which is weird. <laughs> the military uh, heads to the dome, right? And they start attacking it. The Mysterian saucers launch instantly destroy the fighter jets. Oh God, it's, the, it's, it's nothing. You see these little, little light pulses shoot out and it's actually really cool yeah. watching them kind of arc off into the distance and hit that distant target of the moving jet crack shot yeah. on these aliens parts. Yeah. The aliens can actually aim. I said alien parts. 
I suppose you did. <laughs> the dome <laughs> shoots a laser. <laughs> the start shooting laser just melts everything. The tanks, the artillery. Uh, then after just destroying uh, the Japanese military, they start flying around in saucers and announcing to cities that they only want the land they occupy. They don't mention the fact that they've kidnapped people or that they've attacked the giant mole robot, but they keep talking about how peaceful they are, spreading propaganda about that. So they're spreading propaganda about that. And then a group of representatives get together from the entire world, like the UN basically gets together, discusses the aliens. Um, Professor Adachi is like, everybody's going to have to work together because at this point we all have a common foe. And luckily in, in this movie, everyone does work together. Yeah, Honda has this thing where he likes to pretend that in his movies that the world is just fine working together. He does not tend to portray a lot of global instability or political disagreement in between nations, which is yeah very optimistic and I think happens frequently enough that it is clearly an example of his sort of optimistic speculative fiction rather than actually how he sees the world. It's more about how he wants the world to be. It's refreshing. I mean, if I if somebody came out with a movie about this right now, like in this movie, the, the aliens appearing basically ends the Cold War. Yeah. And if we were to make a movie about this right now, that's not what would happen. We'd get halfway through the movie, almost destroy the aliens. And then one nation would be like, hmm, I've taken the aliens technology to take over the world. You know? Yeah. So that's not what happens here, luckily. Um, but. Shiraishi during this meeting is meeting with the Mysterians and the Mysterians are discussing their plan where they're basically going to destroy part of Japan and take over the entire East Coast. They're going to destroy Tokyo. It's always Tokyo. Insurance rates must it's be crazy Tokyo. there <laughs> between giant monsters and alien invasions. Yeah, I mean, if this is all if, if I'm to, to understand that this is all happening like one after another in the same place, <laughs> I would move. <laughs> The primarily the United States comes to Japan's aid. They've launched a, a spy satellite to watch to watch the Mysterians. And while the United States and Japan are discussing everything, Shiraishi comes back through the TV and states that the Earthlings would just destroy themselves within 20 years anyway. So they should just let the Mysterians have Earth. Side note, it's interesting, right, that Honda, again, somebody who, in theory, fought against the United States in World War II. Although, I mean, we know he was drafted, but he was part of the Japanese Imperial Army in World War II and who was in Japan during the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and has expressed great trauma repeatedly over the aftermath of those incidents. He has still now multiple times portrayed America as potentially Japan's greatest ally. And I just well, I find that very interesting. And I find that to be yeah. just like we said before, it's it's a refreshing look at this man's kind of attitude and belief that we need to come together as kind of a globe and that we as a human race should be more cooperative and more collaborative than we are. And what better example to use than America and Japan working together repeatedly in so high uh high profile a fashion right yeah yeah no he's like super hopeful about human relations in general it is it is very refreshing um so they already have saucers over several american and japanese major cities so as usual they're they're flashing their guns saying well you better listen to us and so the united nations is 
back to discussing the Mysterians, and they discuss that the Mysterians are weak to heat, they think, and that the dome weapon can't shoot into the air. And they also discuss the fact that they are working on an electron cannon to just destroy the dome, which is interesting to me because usually it's a positron cannon. But anyway. Oh, yeah, um, the, the Markalite heat ray. Yeah. Yeah. And normally it's a positron cannon. But yeah, so the military launches their airships and they attack the dome from like high up in the air where the lasers won't hurt them as much. One airship gets destroyed. Another one goes back to base. And basically, they lose that fight, too. Then the Mysterians say, all right, from now on, if anybody goes anywhere into this land that we've asked for, we are going to destroy you. They just mask off at that moment. Uh, they actually discuss using a nuke, but luckily the Americans come in and they're like, well, we have this special ray deflection disc, the Markalite unit, and so they can avoid using a nuke. Because earlier when they said that they would retaliate against anything, they said if, if the humans used a nuke, they would just use a nuke back. And just destroy. Yeah, they were like, like "Look, we've been doing this defend. nuclear war shit for a long time, so kind of a not so subtle nod at mutually assured destruction." Right. So Hiroko and Etsuko get kidnapped. People are evacuating, and Atsumi basically says, "You know what? I'll go into that base alone if I have to." He kind of sneaks off during the beginning of the attack. The combined American and Japanese military start using the Markalite units on the dome. And at the same time, Atsumi does sneak into the base because earlier he had found a, an opening in the valley that connected to the base. So he goes in, he just solid snakes around, he steals a laser gun, tries to find the five girls. And then at the same time, Shiraishi goes into a room and it is filled with women. The Mysterians have kidnapped a lot of women. He gets the women to follow him so they can leave. And honestly, the next thing that happens is to me, was incredibly funny for some reason. The Mysterians are starting to lose, right? And their dome's slowly heating up. And the Mysterians go, all right, it's time for drastic measures. And they summon a mudslide out of a, out of a pond? Yeah, I don't know how that happened or what, but it was incredible. I did love the just... sequence. It was just <laughs> completely out of nowhere. Well, no, they did mention before how they had noticed uh, jets of water shooting out of that lake. We're talking way earlier in the movie when they still don't know that there are aliens and they're looking for where whatever mysterious thing might be coming from. So there is yeah. a line that foreshadows that they've they've have the ability to do this. They just don't explain how they can do this. Is it psychic magic? Do they have a machine that does <laughs> this? I don't know. But suddenly the lake just upends itself out and washes away half the landscape. Yeah. See, when, when they said that line, I actually took that as, like, the lake water, like, coming up from the ships taking off and landing. Oh, okay. That's what I took that as. But I guess they did just mean this. And <clears throat> I also thought it was really interesting that a race of people that were trying to avoid the use of nuclear warheads again because they knew what would happen to them developed, like, water-based attacks. <laughs> I mean, you know, you had this all along, <laughs> right? So while everything's flooding, Atsumi's inside still. He starts blowing up all the dome's internal systems with his laser gun. Oh, and uh, he's stolen one of the uh, the uniforms. So he looks straight yeah. up like like the main character from an old Apogee MS-DOS game. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Goofy cape, goofy helmet and Power Ranger looking ass outfit. 
ridiculous looking space pistol that shoots a little Buck Rogersy meow 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 laser. It's so good. <laughs> it was so good. Shiraishi meets up with Atsumi, um, helps them leave back through the through one of the back entrances. Shiraishi hands him the second half of mis- of his Mysterioid report because he's finished it now because they know what happened. And Shiraishi stays while Atsumi leaves. The base starts blowing up. And at the same time, a second Mogira starts trying to dig underneath the Markalite units, like the dishes. And there was another funny scene because he, it digs up and it's like, all right, I'm going to destroy this dish. And the dish, and the dish falls just over falls all over it. Hits it. it. It's, I had to watch that three times. It's so <laughs> good. I cackled like a, like a madman. Yeah, because that's all it takes to take out one of these Mogiras is just like blunt force trauma to one side or the other. To be fair, they dropped a giant satellite dish cannon on it. It it doesn't seem like it's very good at handling, yeah, like big falls and being crushed. It's just immune to like bullets and fire and electricity. But it's so good because you see the dish hit the the suit head and the suit head goes bonk. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, man, poor Nakajima. They're just dropping him (laughs) off of cranes and throwing set models at him <laughs> the poor guy <laughs> so shiraishi has the mysterian leader in firing range as they're leaving he does not fire at them which i thought was interesting he just kind of doesn't shoot the shoot them in on their way out but the base is destroyed atsumi and all the women are leaving some of the mysterians actually manage to escape the range of the electron cannon and they basically say at the end we have not seen the last of the mysterians and it it just ends there. I don't know whether or not we've actually seen the last of the Mysterians. I, I looked around. I didn't see that there was another Mysterian to movie. To my understanding, but... this is the last anyone sees of the Mysterians. They're... So this is hard, okay. right? So this, <laughs> this is kind of jumping ahead slightly into one of my points for behind the movie, but it's worth bringing up now. There are maybe sequels to this movie. And I had to fight whether or not, because I, I was not aware of these movies being even remotely related to the Mysterians. And I was like, shit, do I have to add movies retroactively to this fucking podcast? And what it is, is there is a movie that in some places is labeled a loose sequel and in many places is not considered related at all, but it's called Battle in Outer Space. It's another Ishiro Honda, like everyone came back for it. The only thing I can tell that ties these two movies together is that one character appears in both movies. Do you know which one? I'm looking that up right now to remind myself because I looked this up as I was watching the movie. But that actor is played by a different, a different person or that character is played by a different person. The actor is a different person because that's how. Okay. Etsuko. Oh, Etsuko and Professor Adachi both appear in Battle in Outer Space. However, it has nothing to do with the plot of Mysterians, from what I can tell. And those two actors are played, or those two characters, I said it fucking again, those two characters are played by different actors. And then Battle in Outer Space was itself supposed to receive a sequel called Battle in Outer Space 2, but any connection was even further removed and it was renamed to The War in Space which is another like fairly semi-well-known and cult favorite Honda sci-fi joint. But these movies are so far removed from the Mysterians already that I don't want to actually waste time on them. And I say waste time because it's a lot of effort to watch a movie, record the podcast, edit it together. 
Um, so I figured I would leave those their existence as footnotes here. Mysterians is already yeah. slightly removed from Godzilla, like canon. Mogera, we'll talk about this later, but this incarnation of Mogera actually does not ever directly interface with anything else in the Godzilla franchise outside of a video game. And the oh, Mysterians okay. are never referenced again in any other movie. It isn't until the 90s that Mogera actually gets pulled over into Godzilla proper. Okay. And that's going to happen with a lot of movies. Like so far, we've talked about Godzilla, basically Godzilla 2, and then Rodan. And Rodan famously becomes uh, a repeating monster in the Godzilla movies. The Mysterians is going to be the first of a few movies that we'll talk about mostly in this season of monsters or things that get tied into Godzilla through either movies way down the line, I'm talking decades down the line, or they get referenced in one of a couple of video games that are very, very highly regarded by fans. And of course, are all Ishiro Honda joints. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, um, I didn't want to really worry about these two movies that are sort of maybe, but not totally connected. I don't need spinoffs of a spinoff, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about, I say the monsters in this movie, but neither entry that I wrote in here is actually a monster. They are, but they're not. Frankenstein is the monster. You know what I mean. Yeah. So first <laughs> off, the Mysterians themselves. As we mentioned before, these are, these are dudes in big Power Rangers looking ass space uniforms with capes. Yeah. Way, way before Power Rangers was a thing. My understanding is that their appearance is very iconic and is heavily influential on sort of sci-fi suit design in Japan for a very long time. Mm -hmm. This movie in general is super, super influential. It's, it's very well received in Japan. It's fairly well received in the U.S., like it's it's financially successful in the U.S., although critics don't like it. But I think it, it had a lot of influence on the kind of cinematic and aesthetic language of alien invaders in Japan for a long time to come. Which if you've watched a lot of old Japanese sci fi, you can see. Yeah. It. Yeah. But there's there's for not sure. a lot to say about them. I mean, like like I mentioned before, I think it's interesting that if they had come with humility and they had come asking for assistance, they probably would have got it. But instead, they tried to force what they wanted while trying to pretend to be from the position of weakness. They wanted to have it both ways. I can see how they, you know, all got destroyed in a nuclear war. Yeah, because they're definitely all assholes. Um, and it's kind of sad that their whole species is just so genetically riddled with flaws and, and corruption and so mutated because like they don't seem too physically mutated from what we can see well there is a there are a few that that seem to be they like, look very the grayish and it's helmets it's, are off yeah yeah but um they would definitely have received help if they came and asked for it but they tried to force yeah. it and then of course you find that they're lying even about wanting peace that they have kidnapped way more women than they said they wanted that they've taken extra land that they were planning to wipe out at least a good chunk of humanity in order to ensure their own space and their own supremacy. Yeah. So I can't imagine where he would have gotten the idea for a group of people to show up and pretend they're helping, but actually just attack them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I do kind of feel like his military experience, I, I feel like Honda's military experience plays into this 
And like you brought up, because you actually watched it before I did, so you made the connection that when you consider that Honda had to work at one of the brothels that held Japanese sex slaves, like, you know, he saw that up close and personal, and, and suddenly you have this invading force who is going, oh, we just want a couple of women who will surely be willing, and then you find out there's rooms and rooms of, of, of breeding slaves. Like, right. it's horrifying. It's awful. And it's clear to me that it says a lot about his views on the subject of, of the Japanese treatment of comfort women. Yeah. So, I mean, on top of the fact that he wrote, like, a, a book or something, apparently, about his time at one of those camps and publishing the stories of many of the comfort women that were there. So this is somebody who's very sympathetic to that plight. Yeah. But the Mysterians are very interesting. Mogera is closer to the traditional monster of the movie, but doesn't get a lot of time. Like you mentioned, there's two of them. And I, I wonder what you think about Mogera's design. Well, I thought it was really interesting. Um, it's very bulky, for one thing. It's extremely bulky. That was the first thing I was going to say. The other thing is that I feel like the hands are a little odd. They have like these weird pinchers, but they don't really use them for anything. Yeah, now were they pinchers or were they like... Well, uh, they had like the, the main part of the hand and then they had like a, an offshoot that looked like it had like a thumb, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's a weird like a cone with a cut out of it. Yeah. But they don't have any kind of joint or seam. They don't have any flexibility. Right. They were just kind of there. Because even when it was digging, it was like using the drill on its face. So I don't really know. And like the buzz saw on its back, which is an interesting place to put one. But there's another creature with a buzz saw on its torso. Yeah, we'll get to that one in time. Yeah. (laughs) But I kind of like this design. I like the really uniquely shaped eyes. It has these weird sideways diamond eyes yeah. that almost look like a like a fancy pair of sunglasses of the time. <laughs> like they look like some some fancy sassy women's sunglasses in terms of the shape and I love that. Yeah, they do. The color choice is very interesting. It's it's golds and silvers and greens. Yeah. It's a very unique design, but it's very clunky. It's a very 1950s we had to build a big suit around a guy to make a giant robot kind of aesthetic. Right. And Mogera will eventually be heavily redesigned for the 90s into just an absolutely incredible design. I mean, you, you've you seen 1990s Mogera, and I think it's yeah one of my favorite mecha designs to come out of, of this style of filmmaking. But Mogera is very interesting, and I like how it's they're able to actually shoot pyrotechnics at it and that it's invincible, but that it has a pretty logical weakness, which is something that big must be very heavy. And if it falls or something falls on it, you, it's, it's going to stop working because shit's going to get knocked loose. Yeah. So does it say Mogera in the movies? No, it will never say oh. Mogera. The, the, that is purely a uh, Godzilla Save the Earth edition because it doesn't really make any noises ever. Like it makes a weird kind of telephone line beeping repeatedly which I guess is the sound of the signal being transmitted to control it. Yeah, I think so. And it makes basically no noise aside from mechanical whirring in the 90s film in which it reappears. So 
It is it is a completely silent. It's 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 a robot. It's a drone. You know, it doesn't yeah. need to have a catchphrase. But it is cute how it goes Mogera in the games. Yeah. Um I also love so Mogera is basically Japanese for mole. Oh, okay. Or or it's or it's derived from the word for mole, like very obviously. And when it pops up later, they take the name and they turn it into a, a ridiculous acronym. Oh. And I love that. We'll get to that in the 90s. But um, Mogera's I've got a soft spot for Mogera. And apparently so did Japan, because Mogera's design would go on to be pretty influential for like alien robots and machines of the time. I've seen a lot of alien robots in old sci fi that have that kind of eye shape or a very similar profile. Yeah. So let's talk about just some cool, cool, fun details about behind the movie, making of the movie. So our dream team is back. Ishiro Honda directing. A.G. Subaraya is still doing special effects. Akira Ifukube doing the score. That's the dream team, baby. Every movie that the three of them are involved in, as far as I'm concerned, is a surefire hit. Also, our good suit actor boy Nakajima, like I mentioned, is back as Mogera. He will mm-hmm. not play every single Toho Kaiju ever, but clearly the grandfather of the the art, I would say. Yeah. This is the first movie filmed in Toho Scope, which was basically a knockoff of the much more well-known format Cinemascope here in the US. Um basically Cinemascope if you're not a big like cinephile and movie history person for the longest time, movies were shot in a four by three or something similar aspect ratio, closer to what we would consider full screen. And Cinemascope was a trick with specific lenses, like anamorphic lenses, that would actually allow you to fit a widescreen image on existing square full screen style film. Because what it did is then you would use a lens adapter on the projector and it would stretch the image sideways, which would huh. which would cause it to become the full widescreen image. So it wasn't cropping from top and bottom. It was basically squishing everything in horizontally and then stretching it back out at the projector. So this is a movie that is is in widescreen. It's Soho's first movie in widescreen. We're going to see a lot of these movies be in this format from here out which will make them look a lot more modern by like today's sensibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's going to be interesting because I think about it, like every one of these movies, I've mostly seen them in old English dubbed full screen formats rather than the original Japanese voice track subtitled like we're doing now and in their full quality, like original format. Mm-hmm. This is Honda's personal favorite movie that he ever directed. He has said, really? And I'm not sure, I can't find details if that means that he thinks it's the best one he ever did. I'm sure that's not the case. It might be the one that he had the most fun doing. Uh, It might be one where he got the most personal satisfaction out of addressing these sort of themes. Or that he saw the particular ways that Mysterians influenced Japanese culture and felt particular pride at that. He just said this is his personal favorite movie he directed. This is almost certainly the most expensive movie he ever directed as of the time of its release. Nobody's ever gotten a good figure on what the budget of this movie was, but it certainly cost more than either Godzilla or Rodan did. Huh. So this this is big money blockbuster. Um, I'm trying to think. I think pretty much all of the other things down here 
I mentioned at other points. Beloved in Japan, successful but critically panned in the U.S. Mogera is one of the earliest examples of a giant robot in fiction. Uh, the, the bit about the sequels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all of that, all of that stuff we've already touched on. But it's very interesting because I, I didn't know much about this movie before we went into it. And I'd never seen it. And now that I've seen it and looked into it, I realize how important this movie is for kind of Japanese sci-fi history and for continuing to show Honda's personal politics and his personal philosophies. So this was definitely a movie that was a little more political. This is no Godzilla raids again. (laughs) Why don't you get into what you saw as some of the themes of this movie and some of the messages it was trying to get across? Well, I know we've we've touched on most of them, frankly, but it's a movie about an external threat coming to Earth and all of Earth working together to fix it. And that's incredibly hopeful. Um, the, the movie certainly has more faith that we would be able to do that than I do. But um, aside from that, it, as always, it has anti-nuclear themes. Um, the aliens come down. They've been destroyed by, by nukes. They say that if you would nuke us, we'll nuke you too. They've actually seen and show the long-term effects over generations and generations of, of what Honda was worried and other people at the time were worried might happen because we didn't know what that kind of nuclear fallout would do generations from now. Right. So this was his way of showing, like, hey, here's a consequence you might not have thought about. Right. And I mean, to be honest, I don't think their plan would have worked, even if they, like, forcibly bred with Earth women, because, you know, they, they can't regenerate or recreate DNA properly anymore. I yeah, don't think I think you'd have just made worse just... people. Like, yeah, but but I don't imagine that Honda was an expert in genetics either. So, no, and I I don't think that I think that they as a race, even if they knew it may not work, it was probably the only chance they had. It's a little (laughs) eugenics-y kind of. It is. But like, uh, again, it must be pointed out that Honda is specifically labeling them and their plan as as bad. So the Mysterians. I'm almost sympathetic to the plight that they're in, especially given that they are simply the descendants of the actual war criminals who have Mm -hmm. inherited the kind of curse of their species in many ways. But you you came at this the wrong way. Right. And included in the way they came at this the wrong way, they also (laughs) essentially took comfort women. That's That's the wrongest way, probably. Yeah, yeah. I'm willing to say that. Um, but they were also just heavily like the, the themes of their existence in the way that they came in here and just took things and then said, okay, well we can have these, right? It's just, it's colonialism. Yeah. Yeah. This is a movie that definitely wants to portray both this global cooperation and to be anti-colonial in some regards. One thing that I was looking into as I'm watching this movie is if you understand that the Mysterians are effectively refugees, does that make this movie like anti-refugee or anti-immigrant in any way? And I don't actually see that theme in the movie. I prepared myself to try to find like points for and against that, but Ultimately, 
where the Mysterians go wrong is that they try to take things. They do not come yeah. for help. They came in bad faith from the beginning. They were lying when they came. They didn't come and then get treated poorly by humans and then decide to take over. It was always the plan to take what they wanted by force. So, yeah, that they it, they think they know better. Yes. Because like Shiraishi said, you know, the Mysterians think you're going to destroy yourselves within 20 years anyway. Yeah. So. Yeah. And so in a lot of ways, like it's always tough to this is a movie that kind of weighs the fact that they are colonizers with the fact that they are refugees. But the power differential between even this small faction of aliens who might be the last of their once great civilization and the Earth makes it impossible to view this to me through the lens of being about refugees or immigration. I don't I cannot see those themes. And I, I merely bring this up because I think anytime you see what could be an echo of something like that, it's your obligation if you want to take a movie seriously to look at how it may potentially even accidentally portray that kind of message. I'm a big believer in death of the author, right? It's not just about what the creator of a work intends. It's also what they may have accidentally said with their messaging. So you're right. But, but that's, I, that's I not gave a problem thought to here. the same thing. That's so. not a problem here. Thankfully. So no, we're good. So we come to, is it even any good? I think so. I think it's definitely not as good as Godzilla and Rodan were. I think it's better than Godzilla Raids again. Yeah, well. <laughs> I know, not a high bar. <laughs> but I, I can see where maybe U.S. critics might not have been super into it. It's, it's definitely a little messier. But I enjoyed yeah. it. I think it's a good... It sounds like you might disagree with me. What? No, I'm just... I was going to say that it's, it's schlockier. It's definitely schlockier. Than, but I'm trying to view yeah. this through the lens of it's you know, how many 60 years later, 64 years later. So, you yeah, know, no, I'm, I don't disagree with your placement of it at all. Yeah, it's better than Godzilla raids. Again, it's not as good as Godzilla or Rodan, but it's a it's a solid movie. I think, yeah, it's it's harmed by the fact that finding a good copy of this movie is near impossible. This is not widely available. It was a real pain to procure a copy for us to watch. Especially if you, you did it, especially if you want to watch Internet Archive, especially yeah. if you want to watch the Japanese original instead of the American recut, which is not heavily recut. The American version's not that drastically changed. The only major change they did was they cut the second Mogera out entirely, which some have argued actually improves the pacing of the final battle. I didn't think there was a problem with pacing in the final battle personally, but whatever. Yeah. So I, mean, I liked it. I think I see a lot of stuff that's very cheesy and campy by modern sensibilities, but was clearly groundbreaking and inspired much that came after it. So I have to respect it, even if I'm not specifically deeply in love with it. Yeah. I basically agree with you. Yeah. Was there any specific parts that you really liked? I really like the effects, honestly. Yeah, I think um, for the time, the special effects are great. Yeah. Uh, music was still good. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Ifakube coming back. I like that it's extremely openly delving into being very socially conscious. That's that's going to be a thing we're going to say repeatedly because Ishiro Honda. But 
it's very refreshing in this era of sci-fi. And I think we look back on the sci-fi of old and we like to think of it as cheesy, campy, just an excuse for things to blow up and show the most fantastic things possible. And yet I'm finding the Mysterians to be far more socially conscious and having far more to say than something like Star Wars, which Western nerds hold on like a golden throne. I have a lot of opinions about what Star Wars actually. Yeah, well, (laughs) I don't need people coming to my house. True. I like Star Wars, and I'm going to edit that over that whole segment to protect us. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, is there anything in particular you disliked? Um, there were a few tiny things. Cause I mean, it it was kind of a, I'm trying to articulate this in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. It was very fifties in that the primary threat was not that they occupied three kilometer, whatever of land. It was the fact that they were coming for your women. And also the fact that when Etsuko and Hiroko are kidnapped, they just kind of, the Mysterians just put their arm around them and the woman just faints. (laughs) And she's just taken away. Yeah, that sure does happen. Yeah. And that's a thing that happens in a lot. It's a little little hacky. And you're right. Like of the time that's super common for women to be the resource to be protected or or desired and for them to be mostly helpless in their own situation. I don't think Hiroko or Etsuko ever really have any impact on the plot. No. So they they are the thing that the men are supposed to be protecting because I feel like the, the scene where they're like, well, we want five women. If they weren't like, we want five women, including Etsuko and Hiroko, that would kind of probably just be glossed over. There would be like a general sentiment of like, well, no, I don't think they should kidnap people, but it wouldn't, be presented with this kind of urgency that well these are these two characters women yeah you know what i mean yeah i'm curious um because none of the movies actually the movie so far that did the best with its female characters i think is godzilla raids again which had oddly yeah the love interest in the boss's daughter who was more active in the plot and who had a more active job and had much more speaking time and more to do aside from just being a side piece for another character. So I'm wondering how this will continue because I, I don't think Honda, I'm just going to be curious to see how this evolves. Will Honda ever get over this trend? We've seen three movies in a row for our podcast. And maybe there's other movies he's been directing on the side that are like fully women led. He certainly has a lot of experience with post-war dramas that, have much more engaged like main female roles. So when will we see that start to get kind of corrected in the sci-fi space? Yeah. So I'm curious. I guess I guess we'll see. Um I don't know. I I think I think that's actually a good point and that would be the main thing I am not vibing with as well and I maybe didn't have a good way to put that into words, but you put that into good words. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> So where does this fit into everything? Well, you remember the classic NES Godzilla game, Monster of Monsters. Yeah. Mogera appears as one of the main bosses in that game. 
along with a lot of other Honda-led stuff that gets tied into Godzilla. That game is greatly beloved. There's a wonderful creepypasta that everyone has read, still I feel like. Yep, still the best. 1973. But now you might question how canon that makes it. I do think that there is a sort of intentionality in what non-Godzilla things got wrapped into that Godzilla game. Because in almost every single case, it's something that eventually, later, after 1988, got wrapped into Godzilla. So I think that's worth noting. Mogera also gets reimagined in the 90s, like I said, for the Heisei era of films. Shows up in Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla as a human-created and human-designed piloted robot. It's basically a Megazord. It literally splits into different robots and has multiple pilots. It's fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like one of them's the drill and yeah. Yeah, it breaks into like a tank and a jet form. It's, it's, it's incredible. I love it. So Mogera is the primary way in which the Mysterians ties into this expanding Godzilla franchise. Because the Mysterians themselves don't show up in anything else. We have, in fact, seen the last of the Mysterians. <laughs> we sure have. <laughs> so, do you have any other final closing notes before I read our outro? Uh, no, I don't think so. Good movie. It was not about Power Rangers. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> well, that's a wrap on this episode. Thank you all so much for joining us, both on our journey and for this film specifically. Next week, we'll be jumping forward in time to 1958, but back into black and white with Varen the Unbelievable. We'll get into that next episode, but it's an interesting choice. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter for more of our sparkling personalities. I'm at Derby City Derek. And I'm at Vicero Complex. And you can follow the show itself at Castle Bravo Pod for production updates. Take care, everyone. Castle Bravo is a production of Derek Van Dyke and Charlotte Landale. All editing is performed by Derek Van Dyke. Special thanks to Julianne Lamont for designing our original art assets. And to David Van Dyke for providing our theme song, Pools of Memory. <laughs>